So what are some current barriers that may prevent women from entering politics? Yeah, so um, definitely um, the concept of imposter syndrome is something I feel like a lot of women experience. Um, since there's less representation of women in the government, getting those, those positions, you may feel that you may not be as equipped to handle the situations when you may even have more credentials than the man beside you. So imposter syndrome, feeling like you're inadequate, and despite having the necessary, the necessary skill set, is something many women may face and may hinder them from taking opportunities and um, taking up the space that they, they deserve to have. Welcome to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. The Fulcrum is the University of Ottawa's legendary English newspaper, produced on the University of Ottawa campus in downtown Ottawa, the capital city of the north on the Great Turtle Island. Today on the show, we have an exclusive interview with the Fulcrum's editor-in-chief, Charlie Dutill, and Fulcrum news editor, Zoe Mason. They recently broke the story on the disgraced physician Vincent Nadon. He worked for University of Ottawa Health Services for years, and a new class action lawsuit alleges the University of Ottawa failed to address the complaints behind his practice. We also have an exclusive special from Fulcrum Features editor Amira Benjamin. She takes a deep dive into the current state of Canadian politics and asks, where are all the women? If this is such a diverse country, how come our representatives do not represent that? Amir speaks to a group of expert women, including Caitlin Hart, Pascal Dangois, Esther Gooms, and Stacey Trin. They all give their take on the current state of affairs. And of course, we bring you an update over the ongoing crisis that is the Ottawa LRT. Speaking with Carrie Glines Elliott, a board member of Ottawa Transit Riders, she talks to us about the issues facing people who use paratranspo services. We also talked to Taraz Mikovsky from Free Transit Ottawa and Ottawa City Councillor Sean Menard. But first, it's time for headlines. Today, reading headlines, we have the Fulcrum's managing editor, Ali Murphy. Welcome to the broadcast. Wild and feral pigs have been making their way across North America, and for the first time, they've been spotted in one of Canada's national parks. The pigs wreak havoc and destruction on their environments, tearing up landscapes and destroying ecosystems, eating everything in their path. Now, there have been public sightings in Elk Island National Park, which is the only national park that is fully fenced. It is located about 40 kilometers east of Edmonton. The wild and feral hogs are a hybrid of domestic pigs and European wild boars that were once brought to North America for hunting and sport. The pigs multiply quickly. Each female can have two litters every 15 months, with four to six piglets surviving until at least the first year of age. For nearly four decades, a diplomatic dispute between Kenya and Somalia has been taking place over a 100-kilometer squared triangle in the Indian Ocean that is thought to be rich with oil and gas. The International Court of Justice, the UN's top court, has sided with Somalia, rejecting most of their arguments, but by drawing a straight line from the land border into the sea to establish which country holds sovereignty. 
It is not clear what will happen next, as the International Court of Justice has no means to enforce its rulings. Kenya has refused to recognize the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice. The court was supposed to be the final arbitrator. However, the issue could be soon brought forward to the UN Security Council. Many Sandy Hill residents are calling for an end to Panda Game Street parties after the events that unfolded on Russell Avenue on October 2nd. Susan Kazali, director of Action Sandy Hill, said to the Fulcrum in an interview that residents fear the annual Panda Game parties and that this year showed them just how out of control these parties can get. Kazali hopes future homecoming celebrations can be held on campus away from the neighborhood streets. Many residents say students attending the party threw branches and cans at homeowners who emerged from their homes to tell attendees to vacate their property. This is on top of a resident who was assaulted after confronting a crowd of students who flipped his car over. Issues with a migration to Microsoft Office and a busy schedule are to blame for Uosu not releasing any documents to the public since May, says Union President Tim Gulliver. With no documentation of the union's board of directors meetings publicly available, the union has left students in the dark since the current executive committee took office. Nevertheless, Gulliver says documents should be available on the UOSU's website before the union's next meeting on Sunday, October 24th. He encourages students who want access to the board of directors documents to reach out to him personally or the chair of the board. Though they are absolutely terrible to step on, LEGO has provided children and adults across the world with iconic building blocks and toy sets to build everything from planes, trains, automobiles, and just about everything else. Now, in a public statement this past Monday, the Danish toy maker announced that they will be working to remove gender stereotypes from its products and marketing. A joint study by LEGO and their partner, the Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media, surveyed over 7,000 people in seven countries. None of the children surveyed identified as gender nonconforming. The company was able to find gender bias in its own products, finding that 76% of parents would encourage their sons to play with Legos, while only 24% would recommend Legos to their daughters. It's a bird, it's a plane, it's Superman's son, and he has just come out of the closet. The new Superman, Jonathan Kent, or John, the son of Clark Kent and Lois Lane, has begun a new romantic relationship, and this time it's with a male companion. Superman, one of the most iconic of all the superheroes and true American hero, has always represented a conservative and traditional value system. When relaunching the series, Tom Taylor, the series writer, said it would be a missed opportunity to replace Clark Kent with another straight white savior. He said the time has come for a new Superman, one that could be different from his father. The series, Superman, Son of Kal-El, began in July, and since its beginning, John Kent has been battling wildfires, thwarted a high school shooting, and protested deporting refugees. Thank you, Allie. Last week, the Fulcrum broke the story that a proposed class action lawsuit against the University of Ottawa alleges the university failed to take the appropriate steps following up on complaints about disgraced physician Vincent Nadon. Joining me now is the editor-in-chief of the Fulcrum, Charlie Dutille, and one half of the news editor, Zoe Mason, they both broke the story on the Vincent Nadon case. I just want to ask the both of you, how did this story come to light? Yeah, so I'll take this one. Basically, Sean Brown, who is uh, the lawyer representing the plaintiffs in this case, reached out to us by email uh, one Monday morning and basically told us that he was working on a proposed class action lawsuit and that this was pertaining to Vincent Nadon, who was a doctor at the University of Ottawa's health services clinic on campus, who had been arrested a couple of years ago in 2018, pleaded guilty to 12 counts of voyeurism and sexual assault back in 2018. So we already knew who Nadon was, and just his name kind of flared up some 
light bulbs in my head. And I was like, well, this could be a big story. And we had a call with him. And then he told us kind of all the big lines and all the, the allegations that had not been previously disclosed in the criminal case that we outlined in our article. And how long was Vincent Nadon employed by the University of Ottawa? So Vincent Nadon worked as a doctor at the University of Ottawa Health Clinic between the years 1990 and 2018. He was not dismissed until these charges came to light and he was arrested. I think it's important to just clarify also that he was an employee of the University of Ottawa Health Services, not necessarily the University of Ottawa, but that the University of Ottawa subcontracted its healthcare to the University of Ottawa Health Services. And so just based off of that, what is the UOHS and what is their affiliation with the University of Ottawa? Uh, Well, so the UOHS, the University of Ottawa Health Services, is the service that runs, uh, well, used to run because it doesn't exist by name anymore, the university, the clinics found on the University of Ottawa campus. So basically the clinic at 100 Mary Curie on campus and also the uh, University of Ottawa branded clinic on Rideau Street near the Shoppers Drug Mart in that area where Keo is and stuff now. Basically, they are contracted by university to carry out healthcare for students, alumni, staff members, anybody really who needs it. And they use the university's branding and yeah, they, they, um, they are subcontracted by universities, but contracts do show that the university retains a certain control of UOHS and can, for example, veto any decisions made by the UOHS service. I think another thing that's important to note with that is just like going into a little bit more detail about some of the powers they retain. Not only do they have veto power, they have veto power that they can exercise over the continuation of employment of employees at UOHS, or they did rather, this is now a different entity and they're in a period of transition. But at the time of these events, uh, they had power of veto over the continuation of employment for any employee. And they also had a financial obligation to the university. So they were affiliated in several different ways. They were funded through student tuition fees. And do we have an idea of how many patients Dr. Nadon has seen, or at the very least, how many women he abused? Well, he was originally charged with accusations pertaining to 51 victims. I cannot give you a number per se of how many, uh, I guess, victims there's been. All I can tell you is that he's been charged with, I guess, accusations pertaining to 51 women. There may be more. And when was the first complaint filed? Two women in 1995 did go to the University of Ottawa to file a complaint with an officer there. They had both been acquaintances of each other and found out that they had both experienced inappropriate conduct when visiting Dr. Nadon's office. And uh, they together made two complaints in 1995. Those are the only complaints that we know of that were made. But of course, it's really striking that they were made almost 25 years before he was eventually arrested. Yeah, so uh, a little bit like, like Zoe said, the motion of the proposed class proceedings alleges through two affidavits that two different women, and they both sworn affidavits, filed complaints with the University of Ottawa about encounters that they had with Dr. Nadal at the UHS clinic back in 1995. So basically, the motion and the, from the plaintiffs alleges that the university was made aware of uh, Nadal's behavior in uh, or about 1995. Did the University of Ottawa do anything to address the complaints? 
So according to the affidavits in the uh, proposed class proceedings motion, the university sent a letter to both to both women who complained about Nadal's behavior and told them there was no physical grounds to investigate their claims. These, of course, are all allegations that are found in the motion. So no, according to the motion, the university did not do anything. But Mr. Brown, the lawyer of the plaintiffs, did indicate that he has, he believes that um, Nadal was forced to retain counsel back in 1995. Although apparently, like according to the motions, I guess this didn't go anywhere. So how are the victims doing today? Have you spoken to any of them? Yes. So we had a conversation with Alina Rabat, who is the lead plaintiff in the proposed proceedings. And she told us a little bit about why she's decided to take the lead on this lawsuit, this class action lawsuit, and kind of explained that apart from seeking damages, it's also to make sure that a situation like this doesn't occur again, but also that the university betters its resources to victims of sexual assault and makes sure that they actually have resources for them and have ways to make sure that they can receive psychiatric help, talk to a therapist, and just kind of, you know, have a center and stuff like that. I think there's an element to to it to make sure that uh, those who may be victims in the future or were victims of Nadal get the proper help that they need at the university and on campus. I think that's a really big thing. And just one thing I'd like to add to that is like the original question was, how are the victims doing today? And I think it, it varies a lot victim to victim. And I'm talking with Alina. She's a very strong woman, and I think she's handled it as well as you can expect someone to, but she would be the first to admit that there are things that occurred that she cannot forget that color her experiences to this day, uh, especially in settings like healthcare. And she does need, she's been seeing a therapist about it, and she's not alone in that. And there are other women whose testimonies Charlie and I read who have been prevented from seeking health care due to some of the psychological after effects of their encounter with Dr. Nadon. And to add to that, I think one of the parts of Elena's affidavit that, were, that was really telling is that she seeked help on campus. She went to different offices. She went to her faculty. She went to, at the time, the Federation of the University of Ottawa, the for help. And she was just redirected to other faculties and other services. And I feel like this is an experience that many students at the University of Ottawa have felt when it comes to dealing with sexual violence. And then also, yeah, a lot of the victims and their affidavits mentioned that their encounter with Dr. Nadal caused distress of physicians. And I think that another thing that Alina mentioned, which is important to note, is that this lawsuit is in part meant to reclaim a voice that she feels like she lost during that encounter and afterwards when she had such a difficult time finding resources that would support her. And I think that that's one of her primary goals, like Charlie said, is to reclaim some agency over this situation. So what happened to the victims? Well, the victims were subject to a lot of trauma, of course, after uh, an experience like that. And many have had to seek help from a therapist. Many now distrust physicians. And many, frankly, are like very kind of like, it's not like they, the crimes that were committed were crimes that did not leave a lot of physical evidence. These were videotapes were disguised as uh, medical examination. So really, 
for some, it, they only realized upon hearing of his arrest that they were sexually assaulted. These things were not normal. What they thought was an awkward experience was actually sexual assault. I think it kind of led to a distrust of physicians, as explained earlier. I think that's one of the biggest impacts. I think we, one of the, um, the affidavits talked about how the, the person talking the affidavit, how they gave birth and had some conditions that they simply did not psychologically get treated for. They just, just it didn't work. The trauma was too strong. So what sort of feedback have you heard since the article has come out? So the day we published the article is the day Facebook and Instagram went down for about a whole afternoon. Uh, and so uh, our article was not read by a lot of people on our main platforms, which, you know, Instagram, Facebook, those are the main social media platforms the Fulcrum has. But someone who read it on their website did post it to Reddit. And we did have a lot of feedback on Reddit. A lot of people were frankly not surprised with the allegations uh, enclosed in the article. And others, you know, decided to share their story in the comments. And I thought that was, you know, very interesting, honestly. A lot of people, one, I just remember this one comment. This, this woman said that she was an alumni and worked at the university too and was not surprised and worked in the environment. She alleged that kind of did not really respond to these kinds of claims or these kinds of allegations. I think what's surprising or what surprised Charlie and I is the lack of response from the university since this story, the story of Dr. Vincent Nadon was a story from two years ago, three years ago. Uh, this story is about the University of Ottawa. And so I think we were really surprised when we did not hear from them after the publication of the article. I think it was also interesting to see some of the reactions we got on Reddit. Some people in the comments shared their story at the university and kind of echoed the uh, sentiments uh, shared by Alina in her testimony or her interview with us. I think that was really interesting. And I think that if there's a lesson to be taken from this article is that there's a definite need for improvement on resources for victims of sexual assault. And if at all anything, the university kind of takes that lesson away from reading our article and this whole lawsuit, really. Is there anything else either of you'd like to say? I should say, I think if there's one thing is that there is a lot of processes that as, you know, we were informed of this story about maybe three weeks before we published. That's kind of when we had the first communication with Sean Brown. And there are a lot of hoops that um, you have to go through to publish a story like that, maybe to be legal or just in the way where you phrase things, in the way where you address certain issues and stuff like that. And I think one of the things that I took away is, is that process. And also, you know, the disturbing nature of these allegations, of course, kind of shocked me. I think, yeah, I think for me, the thing that stuck with me the most is something that Alina said, which was just that she hopes that if women take one thing from the story, well, she had a few things, and we went over the rest, that she hoped people would take. But one thing in particular was power imbalances, and as a woman, how you have to be aware of power imbalances. And she was speaking in particular about the doctor's office and the ways in which Dr. Don's position as a physician at the time gave him a power over her that she wasn't even aware he was wielding, that he wielded over all of his victims, that helped to allow him to commit those crimes. But I think what's interesting is that the University of Ottawa 
also has a also has a power. And in not providing a streamlined way for victims to come forward and seek support, then um, that's an abuse of their power as well. Or at least it's a failure where they could be doing more. I mean, I echo all those feelings and I think I really hope that this story and this this proposed um, class action lawsuit, uh, if anything, makes it so that uh, victims of sexual assault or crimes of that nature on campus can get the help that they need and the resources that they need. Thank you both. Thank you. Yeah. Amira Benjamin is our features editor at The Fulcrum. She recently wrote in our paper an article called The Fight for More Women in Parliament. And it was so good, we turned it into radio. Joining me now is Amira Benjamin. Hey, Amira. Hey, Damien. So what inspired you to write this piece? Well, I was watching the most recent election along with many other Canadians and I think I got very frustrated with the lack of diversity, especially like female representation with the results. Personally, from my home writing, it is very white majority and the longest lasting MP has always been like a white male. So it's kind of like frustrating to see that very little progress has been changed in my home writing, as well as many other writings around the country. So I thought it was worth investigating sort of why are there more women in politics, especially after Prime Minister Trudeau did make such a quota to have a gender balanced cabinet, but it hasn't really been ex extended to the rest of like the parliament and there's a significant lack of BIPOC diversity as well. So I really wanted to look into that. And what is BIPOC diversity? BIPOC. Well, it stands for Black, Indigenous, People of Color, so mostly racialized individuals. And it happens sometimes in Western politics that although Canada is a fairly multicultural and diverse country, there aren't really MPs or political leaders who reflect that diversity in our country. So it can be kind of frustrating to see that in terms of like election results and the passing of laws and things like that. And who do you speak to? Um, yeah, so today I spoke to Caitlin Hart, who is a doctoral student in Feminist and Gender Studies, Pascal Dangois, who is a part-time professor in Communications and also has a background of politics, and I spoke to Esther Gooms and Stacey Tran, who are both vice presidents on the Student Registered Government, the International Political Students Association, which is called IPSA for short. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Thank you. Hi, Esther. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. No problem. Yeah, so uh, my name is Esther Gooms. I'm currently in third year political science and public administration. I'm currently VP Equity for IPSA. Caitlin Hart in my now yeah, second year of PhD at University of Ottawa in the Institute of Feminist and Gender Studies. My research project is analyzing BDSM and kink communities in terms of uh, marginalized populations and how there are a lot of barriers, socioeconomic barriers such as race, class, etc. from participating fully in 
uh, King Communities and so forth. Uh, so it's kind of looking at a lot of the groups that are often ignored in this type of research. Yeah, for sure, no worries. So my name is Daisy Chen. I am going into my fourth year of political science college administration. Right now, I am in Mississauga, which is the traditional unceded and uncharted territory of the Mississauga of Social Credit. And my position in IPSA is that I am the Vice President Academic of the Public Administration Program. It's really just like a very fancy way to say that I represent all of the undergraduate students from the Public Administration Program. Um, and I just make sure that one, um, their academic rights are always being honored. Okay, uh, so my name is Pascal Banguas. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Ottawa in Communication. And I'm a part-time professor, but I haven't taught in a while. I've been doing a lot of uh, research assistantship instead. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did teach uh, Family Media, so it's Women in Media, and uh, of course on globalization as well. What are your opinions about the results of this election, especially in regards to it being a snap election in a pandemic? of this election could have been an email. <laughs> um, and that's kind of how I feel about it. I think it's the same as what a lot of people have been saying, that um, it, was, it was a lot of do about nothing. Yeah, so for me, I feel like the SNAP election did not the best thing for Canadians, in which um, the outcome that the prime minister who won was not necessarily beneficial to him and that he didn't gain any more seats. Or, and it really was in a time of COVID-19, um, for many it could be seen as unnecessary since there wasn't much change or any ground really gained in the process. Do I think that it was a responsible use of $600 million in the middle of a global pandemic? No. Do I think that it was a necessary election, especially when they did polling from Canadians to see if this is something that Canadians wanted and two-thirds voted no and they still want to with it. I mean, I definitely disagree with the fact that an election was held when that money could have been going towards funding initiatives or social services. Um, How do you feel about the current status of, let's say, diversity throughout the election and elected to Parliament? I was reading today that they did, I think, double their LGBTQ less representation, which is nice, but if you're still looking at it overall... It's, it's still pretty still, low. It's still pretty low. Yeah. Yeah, and especially, surprise for us, in certain political parties, like conservatives, they only have two out MPs. So it, it's, it's nice, but then thinking more broadly of how much of the population actually is queer identified, I think it's still quite a ways to go, mm -hmm. and I definitely think a lot of it is still very status quo. It's very interesting, especially the way that Canada is organized geographically. The most representation that we see are in those urban centers beside mm -hmm. um, the capitals and those suburban regions, and then for the rest of Canada, it is fairly um, Caucasian. So I think it's very 
very mixed emotions. I think that there could always be more representation in our politics. I don't think that the amount of MPs that actually get elected is reflective of how wonderful and diverse Canada is. In terms of representation of women, uh, this time feminism was not a topic at all compared to 2015, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a loss for a lot of women. Mm -hmm. Although a good thing is that climate change and the environment is pretty big on the agenda, even the, the conservative agenda. And, you know, climate change affects predominantly women and predominantly, you know, women of uh, poor backgrounds or, you know, third world countries and everything. So if we can get the environment on our agendas as, you know, priority, then I think it'll help yeah. gender equality as well. So I think that's good. <laughs> but I wish I wish the, the millions of dollars spent for the election that have been spent elsewhere. I definitely feel like it could be better. I know a lot of words are said about the need for diverse, diversity and inclusion and reconciliation with Indigenous peoples, but there needs to be more actual concrete work done towards it and actual systemic change enacted. There's a lot of words, but not as much action for creating spaces that are inclusive mm -hmm. for Canadians within government. So, uh, what can be done to further encourage women to participate in politics? I, I was hoping there would be more. I'm always hoping there is going to be more progress, and it's always nice to see things like better queer representation and so forth. I think the frustrating thing that I've noticed is that progress is always painfully slow. No matter how much campaigning or other types of like women's caucus and things like that happening, that a lot of times it's still very slow. It's not diverse enough by far. We had, you know, a bit of, of gain uh, in 2015 when the Prime Minister had announced gender balance cabinet, although that was a quite superficial gender balance in the sense of, you know, which por portfolios we're giving to, to which candidates. And in terms of, you know, the, you know, there's there's more than that. There's there's more than the cabinet. There's you know, legis legislation I think we're only at thirty percent right now in terms of of just in terms of gender, so that's not mm -hmm. even counting in all the other identities. Talk about Muslim women or LGBTQ2. I mean, it's not representative at all. Mm -hmm. And we, when we looked at the candidates this year, uh, it wasn't even considered. It was barely mentioned the fact that McKenna is leaving in part because of the violence and harassment that she had to endure uh, as a parliamentarian. And so that wasn't addressed. And I think that is one of the barriers to, to women entering the political sphere is having to deal with that kind of harassment. And you know, if we want more women there, then we need to tackle some of those big problems. Well, there's like such a variety of different historical, cultural, and I agree since why women have been kept out of politics for so long. Mm -hmm. I think especially when you say women in politics, unfortunately, the first image that comes to my mind are images of Jody wilson Ravo and Mamala Kakala, who has been so brave to speak out about their mistreatment in Parliament as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's that. Women have to face a lot more um, and a much more difficult road, for lack of better words, into going into politics compared to men and especially with politics and voting it really narrows down to perception when at least in recent elections the determining factor has been 
has really been changed from, oh, who is the most qualified to take this position, who's most qualified to represent me, to now, who do I disagree with or leave? Mm-hmm. Um, what party do I do I find that I most align myself with? Um, so there's that perception and judgment element that women have to overcome, and we have that age-old perception of women being docile and being mm-hmm. in comparison to the male-identifying counterpart. There's the idea that women need to be the homemaker and caretaker. Uh, definitely opportunity is something there's a disparity in. Opportunity, I would definitely say, is a major barrier for women, especially when you think of the intersectionalities between, you know, black women or indigenous women or mm-hmm. um, women who may not have the opportunities, financial opportunities to um, have access to same things others might have. The, the problem with anything of representation is it's not something like you have to do there's so many systemic barriers such as income inequality and Mm -hmm. like well we saw throughout the pandemic who are the people who are most likely to get covid are also the people who are most likely to have to work lower income jobs or have to or just generally be lower income and not have as many privileges. So being in politics, for example, requires like quite a bit of education and financial security. I think I think there's many. For sure, uh, the uh, well, the harassment and violence that we just spoke about. I mean, there's there's many women who have left because of that. I, I just spoke about. Um, Catherine McKenna, but I mean, there was Selena Caesar uh, Chavanas right before, and I mean, she was also a woman of color, and um, she, and the, the fact with her is that it was barely mentioned com- compared to Catherine McKenna, so even there, between women, there's also, you know, depending on where you come from, you have more importance and a bigger, louder voice than, than other women, so that's a shame. I think there could be a lot more done in that, in that regard. Um, there's also the party discipline, which sometimes can be difficult. You can't you can't speak out of line, and we saw that with the ousting of Jody Wilson-Raybould. That was that had to do with the party line and sticking to the party line. But if you want to challenge the biases, if you want to challenge the status quo, if you want to challenge those traditional roles, then you have no choice but to to push and to go against some of those party lines. So a little more flexibility could help mm-hmm. go a long way. So what do you believe can be done to further encourage these marginalized groups to participate in politics, like sort of grounds up approaches? I think part of the problem is kind of a chicken or egg thing of just like, would there be more likelihood of participation of marginalized groups if they saw more marginalized groups mm-hmm. or there need to be other things done? So I think it's a bit of both because like, I know just, like, speaking for myself as a queer person, like, seeing the representation even in television shows kind of opens your eyes to, oh, this is a life I can actually live. Yeah. Right? So in terms of politics, I think you can get pretty jaded almost if you're not seeing any issues that matter to you covered or any people who look like you. But I think a lot of it just goes back to it's like the, the grassroots of there needs to be the opportunities there, probably as young as even elementary school, for these for any like marginalized groups to actually be able to have options of what they can do and not have to 
because I think a lot of the problems with any like lower groups that are likely to be lower income or uh, marginalized in any way is their focus. Their main focus is often just purely on survival because we've constructed a society mm-hmm. that's very white supremacist and you know prejudiced against many groups that a lot yeah. of racialized, queer, uh, disabled people are, their energy is spent almost entirely on just day-to-day survival. So asking to do more than that is like, okay, but they have to eat, they have to have a house, they have to, you know, be able to actually make a decent living, but there are too many barriers up that prevent that. You know, having more flexibility in terms of running campaigns. For example, I've been following uh, a municipal um, political party, and at their events, they always welcome children. There's always somebody there who's going to help and look out for, for, for the children so that more women can come. Do you believe that in the near future, there will be significantly more diversity in Parliament? I hope so. Like, I like to, I, I can, it can be very easy for me to get cynical uh, reading the news. Mm-hmm. So I have faith that it's just, I, I believe that optimism is better just for a day-to-day, and I'd rather hope for the best, because otherwise it's way too easy to get into a cynical hole. I do believe that our society is making um, a change in our viewpoints towards representation and its importance and the need to have marginalized groups within government, so I definitely feel that, especially during the pandemic, when it's a big cultural change, where many people are learning new things about tragedies, not necessarily tragedies, but hardships that other groups go through and mm-hmm. becoming educated and aware. So that's the first step. Um, the next step is action being taken. So once people become educated, the next important thing is for steps um, of systemic change within government. And that I hope to see that. Um, I haven't seen it as much as I hope, but I do know we're at the first step of awareness. I think so. I think we can't avoid it anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm I mean, it's, it's in their face every day, Thank, thanks to all the movements everywhere around the world, to all the scholars who are trying to work on it. Sometimes uh, I feel like we're in a bit of a backlash situation um, when you see things like things that happen in Texas with the abortion laws. You think, like, this can't be possible in 2021. But I'm hopeful. I'm optimist. Sounds great. Yeah, but thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Okay, thank you so much for interviewing me. So thank you so much. Yep, thank you. On Wednesday, the mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson, pushed back against a public inquiry and instead has asked for an inquiry from the city's auditor general. A city's auditor would have more limited jurisdiction than a judge, And so as of right now, the mayor's reasons for a limited inquiry are rather unclear. There are many strange and continuous moving parts to this horror story that is supposed to be a public transit system. We're going to continue to bring you more news on this story as it continues to develop. Earlier this week, there was a rally at Ottawa City Hall organized by Horizon Ottawa, pushing for a public inquiry into the ongoing LRT crisis. Led hopefully, by an independent judge. I made my way to the event and I spoke to Taras Metkovsky of Free Transit Ottawa. 
Carrie Glines Elliott of Ottawa Transit Riders, and Ottawa City Councilor Sean Menard. Well, what was your name again? Uh, Taras Matkowski. And what organization are you with? Free Transit Ottawa. Yeah, and what are you asking of the mayor today? Basically to, to, to tell the truth and to stop and to get the city out of this damaging contract. It, I mean, you, when you think about it, Ottawa is the capital of Canada. Like, we're the, we're the face of Canada to the world in some ways. What does it say when we can't keep, like, a train on the tracks and have a, and have a functional transit system? Like, this is a state of affairs that can't and shouldn't continue for the, forever. Like, it just can't. And we're asking the mayor to, to like, make the truth known and, get, and help us understand why things are the way they are. Free Transit Ottawa has been developing a plan that we want to see for service transit service improvements in Ottawa. It's right now we're focusing on uh, improving like getting transit improvements for places like Vanier and Bayshore. Like yeah, if you talk to any transit riders like in Vanier, they'll tell you the horror stories about the routes 12 and 14. It's there, there, they've been quite, quite some of them. But uh, like, we've been working on just like some proposals that you can ch check out on our website, like freetransitottawa.ca, and like we're, t we're, we're still focused on our goal to get free transit in Ottawa. Like, but we want good transit too. Like, the system that, that we have right now, like, I don't know how many people would ride it if you, ma if you made it free. Like, we, we need free transit, and we also need good transit at the same time. Is there anything you'd like to say? Oh, well, I'd just like to say that um, like, I've been a transit rider pretty much from the moment <laughs> from the moment I was born. Like, I, grew, I was born in Ukraine and like I took, I was taking the subway system with my grandma just for, just for fun. And like, I've been riding transit like ever since I came to Canada. Like, I, I was, grew up on the transit systems of Saskatoon and Regina. And, uh, like I know the importance of transit, and it's like it's a real shame what's happening with the with the Ottawa Transit Network. Like we need we need change, and like we need something to change with the system. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Okay, what's what's your full name? Uh, do you want me to take my mask off? Can we stand a little bit apart? Okay. I'll keep mine on. Okay. What's your name? My name is Carrie Glines Elliott, and I'm a board member of the Ottawa Transit Riders. And when did uh, Ottawa Transit Riders start? Uh, we started in April 2019. We actually had our founding meeting here at City Hall. We started because uh, before the train launched, they kind of poached, the, we, we, we joked that they cannibalized the bus system in order to pay for the train. And so people were really noticing a decline in, in the bus service. And people said, you know, no matter how great this train is going to be, we still need a bus service. So that's what we started for. So the our members are concerned about the transit system from like, all, all the whole transit system, including paratranspo. And the train is a really small part of it. Even if it were working like really well, we would still be talking about the bus system. And the fact that the train is not working really well and is actually hurting the bus system just makes the whole situation so much worse. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the paratranspo issues right now. How are things going for anybody that would really need those services? 
That's actually a really good question because again, before pandemic, before we locked down, Paratranspo was actually stretched to the limit with capacity. People who use Paratranspo are really, really frustrated with things like there are limits on how many times you can take a Paratranspo bus in a day. So if you have an appointment and then you're supposed to meet somebody and then somebody says, hey, I have tickets to a concert, you can't go to that concert, right? There's a limit. And I mean, that's very infantilizing, right? Most people who use public transit, they can decide how many times they take the bus. They can swipe their business, their, their bus pass. So uh, people who use Paratranspo want an app, like an Uber-like app where they know when the buses are coming and when they're, uh, how far, how much longer they have to wait because they often have to wait long periods of time. They wanted a much better system for booking so that they didn't have to sit on the phone every day for about two hours in order to book their rides for the next day. They wanted uh, a reduction in limits. Some of them want um, a reduction on when Paratranspo closes, right? It closes earlier than a regular uh, bus system. So if you're out to a bar with a bunch of your friends, you have to go home early, like you know, a kid or something like that. So people who ride Paratranspo, they have a long list of demands and they've been asking the Transit Commission, they've been going to the Transit Commission meetings and they've been saying, hey, Paratranspo still needs to be addressed. There are still big issues. Uh, and as I said, I was paraphrasing, but for the most part, people in charge of the whole transit system say, yeah, 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 we'll deal with you guys later. We have bigger problems. We have to deal with the train. We have to deal with something else. We have to deal with electric buses. And the people who ride Paratranspo really need Paratranspo. It's a really essential service for them. So it needs to be bumped up in our list of priorities. Thank you very much, Carrie. Councillor Menard. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm doing well. Yeah. Uh, is there anything that uh, you know? I know you've been a strong advocate for transit. Last week we spoke to uh, your coworker Jeff Lapierre, Diane Deans. She's been on the show. Is there anything you'd like to say? Well, I guess I guess just that I hope people recognize that under a normal council, we would be passing this judicial inquiry without any question. But we don't have a normal council right now. We have a command and control council that has excluded voices, which continues to do it, and cover up an issue of accountability and transparency for the LRT. So I, uh, the vote is tomorrow. We'll see. Maybe some votes can be swayed. But I'm, I'm doubtful because of the, what I've seen in the past with this council. And they'll keep doing this until they, they can't anymore. Um, so I think true accountability is going to come in the 2022 election rather than through a judicial inquiry tomorrow. Who are you backing for mayor? <laughs> well, not the current guy. How's right. that sound? <laughs>
but still sit second in the RSEC standings behind Concordia. They have one last regular season game before they switch gears to playoffs. They'll be on Matt Anthony Field to host ETS on Saturday. But before the men take the field, the women's rugby team is battling it out with Concordia, who they defeated 50 to nothing just two weeks ago. The team is coming off a 58-7 win against Sherbrooke and are looking to end their season off with a three-game win streak. The women's soccer team still has not been defeated, but didn't quite pull out the win over Carlton on Monday. After defeating the Ravens 3-0 on Friday, the teams kept it tied at 1-1 on Thanksgiving Day. Now, the soccer team has a weekend at home, and the GGs are trying to keep their loss column at zero when RMC visits Friday night and Ontario Tech on Sunday. On Sunday at 2 p.m., we're finally going to get to see some action in Montpetit Hall as the women's volleyball team is starting off their season. The team will be looking to prove that they're stronger than they were during the 2019 season, the last time we saw them. And that's not all. We're only weeks away from seeing the hockey teams take the ice at Minto, and after that, the basketball teams will be back on the court. Lots to look forward to this October, but for now, I have to get going. I'll be in Brampton for nationals all weekend, trying to bring home a medal with the GG's women's frisbee team. Wish me luck, and I'll see you all next week. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you to everyone involved in this week's show. Very big thank you to Fig, the Fulcrum's managing kitty cat, who let Allie Murphy read headlines for us. Thank you very much to the fearless leader, the editor-in-chief, Mr. Charlie Dutil, Thank you very much to Fulcrum News Editor, Zoe Mason. She's in Tobermory, but that didn't stop her from bringing out the big guns. And we featured our Features Editor with a special feature, Amira Benjamin. Thank you, Amira. Gone to teach everyone from Regina how to play Ultimate Frisbee is Jasmine McKnight. Music and sound design by Cameron Rankin. You've been listening to the Fulcrum Radio Show. I'm your host, Damian Piper. See you next week.